Okay, I think <clears throat> Jeremy has the microphone. So if anyone has any questions. Did everyone get all the blanks? Great. Excellent. Anybody have any questions? Okay. When he says in Second Timothy, all scripture is given, does that at that point in time imply that it is simply the Old Testament scripture? And if it includes, in our day, the New Testament, how do you answer the people who believe that the scripture about the woman caught in adultery should not be in the Bible? I'm going to jump in and say, I'm picking up there next Sunday. Perfect. And if I say too much now, you're going to ruin the first 10 minutes of what I have to say next week. <laughs> it's, a, no, it's a great question. And I was telling Mitchell, just, 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 yeah, 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 okay. No, no, that's precisely where we're starting next week. Um, yes. After the sermon on Sunday, I'll give you the answer. <laughs> Although, honestly, I probably won't deal with the woman caught in adultery till the ABF, but I'll be dealing with on what basis do we need me, do we accept the New Testament? Absolutely. Yeah. This one being a mic guy. <laughs> Okay, so I think, yeah, it's point under point two. You're talking about Paul and his sufferings and how all Christians will suffer persecution. But given that we are in this sort of, well, we're maybe still are in this Christian, uh, what is the word? Friendly, yeah. I don't really expect persecution, and I, at least maybe in the sense that Paul experienced that same persecution. So is there a different way we should be looking at persecution? Or should I be expecting, like, not, not rocks, literally, but the physical aspect of persecution? Like, I don't know. Yeah? Take it away. That's a great question. Yes, it is, Mitchell. <laughs> well, all I, I guess all I can think of right now is uh, th- there are different levels of persecution. I don't think uh, Paul is talking specifically about death 
and 312. Um, and certainly Jesus' disciples didn't encounter death uh, until much later on uh, in, their, in their life, especially Peter. I mean, it, it could have been some 30 or 40 years after um, the resurrection of Christ that Peter ended up being crucified according to what Jesus um, prophesies about him in John 21. But um, I think at, at least at this point in time in the United States, I think we should at least expect some kind of verbal assault. I think that's probably the most common form of persecution that we're going to endure. Um, the whole of First Peter, I think, talks about that kind of a that kind of persecution, um, which is kind of in keeping with something that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, when basically when people drag your name through the mud, um, speak poorly of you then um, you should count it a blessing. So let me read from the Sermon on the Mount first. Blessed are you when others revile you. So that's verbal assault. Same word, looking up. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh. That word, the same word, the same word for persecutions in Matthew 5, 10, 5, 11, and 5, 12. Okay. So great. read. Yeah, okay. Utter, yeah, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So certainly it begins with verbal, verbal assault because of the sinful inclinations of men and because of the fact that they hate the truth. Because the reason why they pr- crucified Jesus was not because he was a humanitarian and he was helping people out too much. It was because he spoke the truth about their sin. So it can end with uh, execution but I think it certainly begins with verbal assault. So there's the Sermon on the Mount. And then we could go to other places, but First Peter chapter 4. Um, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. So when we are verbally assaulted for being a Christian, which I think could be as simple as uh, you don't like to lie, what's wrong with you? It's not a big deal. Just do it. Nobody's, nobody's, everybody's doing it, and the boss won't find out. I'm not going to. Okay, you're, that's dumb. I think even that could be considered verbal assault. But First um, Peter four thirteen to 14, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So for the most part, I, at least for First Peter and then what we read in the Sermon on the Mount, the thrust is going to be verbal assault. And I think we, we see that a lot in the United States, but kind of behind closed doors. And, and you have kind of like the two-faced mentality with, I'll treat, you, I'll treat you nice around some groups of people. I'll be professional. But then in another atmosphere... I'll kind of just slip you the insult in a subtle way. So, yes. I, I think with all the demonstrations at their homes, 
I think that's part of it right there. I'm not saying they're all Christians, but they're trying to do something right with that overturning uh, the Roe Wade. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, the Greek word behind this can have anything from to harass or simply press all the way on to drive out. So outward pressure due to unbelief on someone because of their belief could could just be mild sort of disapproval all the way through driving someone out. Well, and, and even if physical flesh and blood people aren't doing this, we have an enemy who's pursuing us and harassing us, and and so it it may. The church seems to actually do better under serious overt persecution than they do over prosperity. Yeah, what I was going to ask, you've just touched on, and that is, could it be the the stuff that comes from Satan, um, you know, against the principalities and the powers and all that kind of uh, stuff, and you just touched on it. So that could be that kind of stuff because we didn't be alert and pay attention to our um, persecution. Now we've lost, and we're headed downhill as a society. I think one way that we see a, a sort of persecution is kind of the the world's general opinion that people who believe strongly in the things of the Bible or or even other religions, uh, their scriptural texts are weak-minded, are simpletons who need they need this to 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 lean upon so that they, because they can't hack it mentally in, in our world, you know, it's a, um, it's a, it's an insult to, to those of us who are believers who believe in the word, uh, because, you know, if we were more intelligent, more educated, more, you know, capable mentally, then we could see but instead, we have we have to trust in what the the space ghost upstairs says to so that we can you know make it through life. You know, it's just a um, it's a it's a bigotry of you know those of us who believe the words of the Bible they they belittle be, uh, as unintelligent or you know weak when it's actually. Quite the opposite. It's very difficult to to strongly hold to these opinions and and to follow them. Um, it's much more difficult. Yeah. Well, and that's if they're being nice. If they're being nice, they credit us for being stupid and weak-willed. If they're being more vicious, they charge that we simply do it so that we can be tyrannical with truth claims. Uh, that we're that we we hold to the book so that we can hate, judge, look down upon others. Um, so you, you, you reference the nice form of bigotry. <laughs> it, it, they are also are more virulent forms.
I see a lot of persecution in this day and age. People are losing their jobs if they don't get a vaccine that they might believe is bad for them. Um, also, uh, if we don't pretend a boy is a girl and, and that that's not a wonderful thing, we're, we're very much looked down on. Actually, you can get in trouble at work. So I see a lot of persecution going on. Yet, we are the light that shines in the darkness. So, mm-hmm. how blessed we are to suffer. Right. Yeah, Twitter mobs and cancellation sure look an awful lot like persecution to me when they come upon. I mean, I'm just thankful I'm, I'm not really on Twitter. And there are cert- but the people in the public, there's a certain professional in certain spheres who is very susceptible to the cancellation pressure. Um, yeah. Even ones you wouldn't think, like uh, with that guy who was like a tech guy. And somebody found out about his private donation to a pro. Yeah. And you're like, what? It's not Hollywood. You think like Hollywood people would be more susceptible to that. But it was it was crazy. Oh, Zeb knows it better than I do. For those of you driving along right now, we apologize for the confusion. Um, the extent of it that I'm aware of is that it was the um, the founder, I believe, of Firefox, uh, the browser, um, donated some fairly small amount of money to. Uh, it was it was around the time of uh, Proposition Eight. Basically, in the in California, he donated money towards the cause um, against uh, gay marriage, which was. The wild thing is that it was turned. It was voted down. Gay marriage was voted down in California. He donated to that cause, and then the people that were, um, like, a few years later, after you know, after Oberg- after Obergefell uh, went through the Supreme Court, now all of a sudden we've got gay marriage, and now all of a sudden anybody who said anything about it, even though they were in the majority, you know, ten years ago, now if they say anything, they're they're just Twitter mobbed and their lives are destroyed. Hmm. Yeah, Tim. Uh, Switching gears a little bit. I don't know if this is really a question so much as just a breath of fresh air in verse 14. Did you go that far? Yeah. Yep. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and, be, and, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ, uh, through faith in Christ Jesus, all scriptures God-breathed God and profitable, etc. Just... That stuff is weighing more on me. I'm in that stage of life. I've got a 14-year-old and two more coming and and have grown up in the church and just seen that cycle of like all this great foundational truth for 18 years and then it's off into the world and uh, 
while it's not, you know, stoning and whipping and, and dragging people through the streets, there's not, you know, there's no praying before the company dinner, you know, there's no acceptance of, or expectation that, oh, of course you go to church, you know, it's, it's in fact the exact opposite, you know, and just, not that it's exclusive to young people, but just encountering that, that, just that tone, uh, that, that constant beat of, you know, Christianity's stupid, (laughs) and just how important it is for, like, my kids to be reminded that there are smart adults that are here that, that are still committed to the scriptures and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and don't think it's stupid. And when a college professor or 30 college professors and, you know, 12 dorms full of kids and everything, you know, you just encounter that from, and, um, it's just so important, uh, to get that kind of a, a reminder. And you can just kind of imagine, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, right? So Timothy, Paul obviously knows that this is, is the sort of the course in, in that day. That's no different than it is now. And just, uh, how important that is and what a, what a, uh, I guess for anybody who's older who doesn't quite know why they're still here, <laughs> you know that example of of staying to it is 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 a valuable thing, a tangible thing that a young person can look and say. Now wait a minute, are you saying that you know, are you saying my old pastor over here was was not smart because you know he was an old guy and still believed in Jesus? Well, you know you can hold on to that stuff. <laughs> In the future, you will be, Lord willing. And uh, no, no, I was kidding. Anyway, no. Uh, anyway, I don't know. I, I just don't have a big question there, but I, I, and I don't know if there's any other comments to be made about it, but it's just so important to, to admonish our young people and prepare them for that idea um, and encourage each other, of course. Well, partly in response to that is that um, one thing you might, uh, that we need to raise with people that are questioning uh, perhaps our faith or why do you stick with this old old religion that's been disproven, supposedly, whatever. Um, what other religion is attacked in quite the same way? You'll, you'll never see people getting canceled for talking about uh, Muslims, most likely, or Muslim scripture. And that all the other religions of the world are pretty much respected. And, oh, that's a lovely way to find God. You know, whatever they they want to say. Whereas the fact that ours is targeted repeatedly through history, to me, is um, an indication that it is there's really some meat there for the wicked people to attack. And and then on the, the kind of continuing on that is that we're saying that, well, I, we know that the leader, the elites of our culture are anti-Christian, shall we say? That'd be a simple way to say it. But I think there's lots and lots of people that will agree with us if we speak to them. If you speak to them in a private and kind way and you're not trying to pick a fight with people like like Twitter's famous for, is most people, I think, do know that men are men and women are women and that it's not as, as foolishly complicated as the world is trying to make it. So that we, we need to just speak the truth in love 
And I think uh, that is the best way to win people. And that also, once again, I say that I think most people have a, a kernel of common sense that is going to reinforce those simple facts that we can all see with our eyes. Is there anything from this morning you want to go further with or deeper, Mitchell, or, or dig further into? Um, well, I had mentioned that uh, I thought that Timothy knew about Paul's sufferings in Antioch, Iconium, and uh, Lystra, and those persecutions happened before Timothy even came on board uh, with Paul. So... Uh, I can just justify that. <clears throat> the reason why I think that. Um, so Acts 16. This is the first time that Timothy shows up in the book of Acts. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman. And we know that that was... I get them mixed up, either Eunice or Lois. Okay. Um, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Um, so right off, Luke, Luke says that this woman that is Timothy's mom is, not a, is, is a believer, but he doesn't say that his dad is a believer which leads me to conclude his dad's not a believer. Otherwise, he, Luke would have said, Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman, um, or you know, a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek who was also a believer. And also the, the word but is a word of contrast sometimes. So um, he could have died, yeah. Could have died. But then he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And um, so as we already know, the people from Antioch and Iconium came to Lystra because they didn't think the persecutions they leveled against Paul were sufficient. So they joined the team with the, with the people of Lystra. Um, so if in fact it is the case that Timothy was from Lystra, which I think I think that would make sense. In verse one, Paul came to came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there. I think the closest antecedent. Which city are we talking about when Luke says there? Probably Lystra. Probably not Derby. I don't want to be dogmatic on that, but. Um, probably from Lystra. Obviously, he was well, well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra. And um, when, the, uh, when the persecutions happened, I mean, obviously, the people had already heard the gospel um, from, from Paul because he was in the throes of, of ministry and sowing the, sowing the initial seed of the gospel. So, um, I mean, who knows? It could have, could have been the case that Timothy first heard the gospel from Paul in Lystra. And 
one of the reasons why it really stood out in his mind, um, in Timothy's mind, uh, that Paul was persecuted there at Lystra was because he was converted there. So that's kind of the whole explanation of why I said that. I just wanted to make a point about one of your points uh, in the second section that God proved himself faithful through deliverance. And I think that we can we can run the risk of sort of a binary thinking where God proved himself through deliverance. So therefore, had God not delivered, then he wasn't being faithful. And, and we sort of need to be careful. I think the Bible gives us lots of opportunities to, to sort of incorrectly make those assumptions um, where, you know, God is not willing that any should perish. Well, many, 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 many people are going to perish. That, that doesn't mean that, that God is lying or incapable of doing... You know, I just, I just uh, think it's interesting that, you know, God proved himself faithful to Paul by delivering him, but that doesn't necessarily mean that in all situations he will prove himself faithful by delivering people because... Well, he did ultimately, yes, he was ultimately martyred. So that doesn't, I mean, it's, it's not an all-time promise. And the, the contrast to this statement of um, that if he wouldn't have delivered Paul, God would have not been faithful is not a true statement. So it's just interesting the way that sometimes we have to read Scripture for what it specifically says and not what it doesn't say. You know, and just be careful with our interpretations in those regards. Well, I mentioned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is what they say to Nebuchadnezzar uh, when he threatens to throw them into the fiery furnace if they don't worship the golden image. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. He's able to. Whether or not he will is a whole different matter. He can do whatever he wants. <laughs> um, I, think, I think so, yeah. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Can I can I jump yep. in? Yep. Where in four is it where he prom- he does make a promise to Timothy? God'll for what? I'm trying to look it up. First Timothy four. God will deliver you from every evil. I think it's. Uh, I don't remember. It's after eight. It's okay. like eleven or something. Okay. Um. Well, 418, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Well, there, so there the deliverance is not necessarily physical deliverance, but 
preservation. God will, even when the Lord lets Paul be put to death and his head cut off, he's delivering him from every evil deed and delivering him safely to the heavenly kingdom. Um, In God's in history has clearly been pleased on many occasions to physically deliver his people and to highlight his power in that. Um, but th- there's no guarantee you're going to not, the rock's not going to hit your head. Um, the, the promise is sustain- sustenance, that God will give you strength. He, his, his power is magnified and made great in our weakness. So the, the motif seems to be the Christian shows himself faithful by being willing to endure suffering and persecution. And God shows himself faithful either, either by delivering them from the threat or sustaining them with joy, sustaining them with hope through it. Um, I think, I think that's largely how the Lord answered our prayers with, with Jeb. He, it was a prolongation of Jeb's life and an ultimate, he succumbed to the cancer, but he was able to give great testimony to God's grace and power over 10 years outliving what the doctor suggested as he, as he faithfully persevered to the end. Um, and so that's the type of deliverance that can be promised. And you're right, Jeremy, there is no promise that this particular physical threat, the Lord has promised this particular deliverance. But deliver us and see you through it, carry you through it, bring you safely home through it, absolutely. And that's what we're counting in. Either, Lord, you're going to take this away or you're going to see me through this. I guess I'm asking... uh for collaborate, uh, corroboration or something, because basically what I tell my kids and grandkids at this point is God never promised that the deliverance would be here on earth. But if we trust him, he will bring us safely through to heaven where he is. Mm-hmm. Any other questions or observations? Or? I'll, th- I'll throw you a softball, Mitchell. Can you unpack what you mean by mentor? You use the word a bunch. Um, what do you mean, and what might that look like practically? If she said, go out, make time, find one. Okay. Can you give any more practical suggestions or tips on what that is, what that might look like? Um, what, what, who is a mentor? What do they do? How, you know, just... Unpack that some. So a mentor doesn't have to be somebody who's older than you. I think that's a common misconception that we have. Um, It could be somebody who's younger. Uh, So I think it just has to do with somebody who is more mature in some area of, of your Christian life. So um, it could be knowledge of Scripture. Somebody knows, knows more, is well-versed, uh, can navigate their Bibles better than you. Um, then you can meet with them and hang out with them and ask them different questions about study techniques and Bible memorization or, or, or whatever. Um, it, it could be, you know, Jeremy and I talked about his admiration for 
some mentors that he had back in California and the interaction that the husband and wife had um, between one another. Um, so that, that, can be, that can be just one area that uh, you could see in your own life you could need improvement. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think at, at the base level, it doesn't have to do with age as much as maturity. Because someone can be, you know, 65 years old and s- have a lot of um, deficiencies that someone who is 40 could, could really meet and help them with and vice versa. I'm going to jump in for a second. I I think it's important to encourage, well, let me give you a scriptural basis. Hebrews, you have it in your notes, but Hebrews 10, 7. What Paul is modeling with Timothy is actually commanded. If you're you're like, well. 13, 7. 13, 7. Thank you. And what Paul's modeling with Timothy is commanded to us. Um, It's not just a suggestion like, well, maybe we could do what Timothy does. But in Hebrews 13, Verse 7, remember your leaders, and it defines them by apposition, those who spoke to you the word of God. So anyone who's taught the Bible to you, anyone who's spoken scripture, that could be a friend exhorting you, it could be a Sunday school teacher, it could be an elder, it could be anyone, um, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So pay attention to how they live and how that works out for them. Then imitate their faith. So there's the command that we're seeing modeled in Second Timothy. Um, so there, there's the print in principle. So, so we ought to be looking for people we can learn from. And the the other thing pastorally I'll find is a lot of times people will be disillusioned with a potential mentor because they'll see some area. This will surprise you. Even older saints can have areas of immaturity, areas of weakness. So I, I'd urge you. To not think holistically, you're you're not likely going to find a Paul. You might be, maybe you will, but you're not likely going to find a Paul. You're going to likely find a Swiss cheese Paul. So narrow it down to, I I really think I could learn to be a better husband by spending some time with this person. I think I could be learn to be a more kind person if I spent time with this person. I think I could I could speak in a more beautiful way in a more gracious way with this. If you narrow it down to things you can learn from, then you might have four or five people you're trying to spend time with um, who you're thinking things you can learn and imitate from who may have other areas that you're actually more mature than they are in. Um, The real issue is, can you find people modeling fruit that is more mature than yours in certain spheres and then learn and imitate them and and what they're doing and, and not demand, I need the whole package because there aren't a whole lot of Apostle Pauls running around. Uh, also, that's encouraging for someone who might be able to see themselves as the Swiss cheese Paul. Say, oh, maybe there's an opportunity to mentor somebody else in an area that, you know, I can see that maybe I can help in, in some area, though I may not be. Just not letting that fear of perfection undermine you. And um, You can ask your question, Serena, or make your comment, but I just kind of wondered... Talking about mentors, you know, the, the other names here in this passage are women's names. Do Can can women mentor? I suspect that's the answer, yes. Um, 
just kind of in light of Mother's Day, I just wonder if there's any more elaboration or expanding on just sort of the role of women, I don't know, in this context. Well, the, the biblical, do you want to go or do you want me to go? I don't know what you're going to say. Well spoken, I'll go. So, the, the, well, no, and, and it's got to get back against everyone freaking out at the patriarchy. God designed couples to couple, and he designed that when couples couple, kids generally, generally happen as a result. And he designed one of the couple to be able to feed them from their body, generally. So the, 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 the splitting of division of labor is not a patriarchal conspiracy as much as a practical um, uh, what's the word? Pragmatic decision. It makes sense um, that since newborn infants need care and someone's going to have to care for them and someone's going to have to do some other work, the, the division of labor makes sense. So the Bible then assumes normally the mother is going to have the largest influence on these kids in their early, in their early years. That's just practically how it's going to work out most frequently. Certainly there'll be exceptions. Um, this is how the Proverbs appeal to both the father and the mother. Even though I, I believe that it's clear from First Timothy 6 that the father is the one who will give the account to God for how his children are raised and instructed, uh, that mothers play a role in that. This, this text alone, if, assuming, and I think Mitchell's right, assuming t- t- Timothy's father is an unbeliever and presuming that as persecution is going on this time, it's entirely likely the unbelieving father had some issues with Christianity— both the mother and the grandmother are able to successfully witness and overcome that. It, it speaks volumes in their faithfulness and the significance of how important that faithfulness is. I mean, they, they ended up in the Bible just by being faithful to teach their son and grandson. That's, that, I think that alone is a, is a testament to the significance of, of that ministry, let alone when a husband and wife are both actively pursuing that goal. No, it also sounds to me like Paul talked to Lois and Eunice. So there's some kind of personal impression that Paul received from them. Uh, It's not just that he heard about, I mean, he may have, but Luke doesn't mention mom, Timothy's mom by name. Paul does, and I would assume that... um, in one five, doesn't he? That's one five seems to speak of seems to speak of his knowledge. Yeah, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So, and there, and there, you even see the multi generational passing on of the torch of faith, which is kind of mirrored in the next chapter and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also four generations there three generations in chapter one so So, M, I, uh, I was raised in church, but mentoring was never a word that came up. 
uh, until I got to the Midwest area. And am I correct in saying that it's just taking somebody else under your wing and um, maybe it's a friendship that is different from other friendships in that you talk about spiritual things? Uh, sometimes if you're raised out in New England, it's not where you talk. It's not, you, you just in my mother's house, when the whole family got together, we're not talking about politics or religion (laughs) because it was too divisive. So she would lay down the law at mother's, at mother's day dinners and say, it will not be brought up or you will be excused from the table. (laughs) You know, even if you're 25, too bad. (laughs) Anyways, um, and so when I got out here, just, I I only had the Sunday school papers to tell me what a church community would look like. And I remember praying, how do you do this? Do you get the Bible practical? And I ended up teaching preschool with Donna Andrus. And I mean to tell you, if that wasn't the biggest blessing and education in how to raise children practically as a Christian mom and hopefully as Christian kids. And um, because it was just modeled. We were dealing with preschoolers. Come on. And it took it away from my Massachusetts college training and into actual, practical, what to say and how to give the <laughs> Christian <laughs> Christian um, Christmas story <laughs> and talk about Santa Claus and just hit all the things head on. Uh, I was just a blessing. Mm. And all it was was a friendship or a work relationship. No, I, I, I certainly agree. And it doesn't need to be formally titled. I mean, you, most people probably wouldn't be uncomfortable being someone's mentor, but more people are less comfortable being a mentee. Um, you, to make it as simple and practical as you can, if there's some area of immaturity and growth the Lord has convicted you you need to grow in, find somebody who does that well and then try to spend some time with them and pay attention when you do. It's nothing they're necessarily to introduce you as this is my mentor. Maybe you will have that type of those relationships I've seen happen, but more commonly it's just, man, I really want to learn how you shepherd your wife. Man, I really want to learn how you um, can deal with suffering and speak and not grumble. I need to spend some time with you and then I need to, to take advantage and, and make use of the time I spend with you to learn. You know, they may even never know that I was viewing them as a mentor, you know. Um, but but just finding the people who are bearing that more mature fruit in those areas that the Lord is making you aware you, you need to grow. Well, I'll, I'll just say this. Um, I think Titus 2 is a great place to go when we are thinking about our responsibilities to one another in the church. It's great that for the most part, churches are not one age group. At least they shouldn't be. 
this is the 18 to 30 crowd. And that's... So, Titus 2 mentions older men, older women, younger men, younger women. And specifically with the older women, in verse 3, um, Paul says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So, you know, Paul doesn't use the word mentor, but... uh, He's describing it. Right. He's... You see the definition without the term. (laughs) And that should already be going on all the time. Uh, So... And like I said, elsewhere you have the example of Paul and Timothy. Uh, and, I th- and I think, I don't know if I read this, I forget. But uh, Philippians 4.9, Paul assumes that <clears throat> the Philippians know the, um, well, this isn't the one that I was thinking about. What you've seen, what well, but yeah, it's still, it's still, I guess, in a secondary way applies. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. But, the, but it begs the question, well, what are we supposed to do, Paul, when you're dead? We can't learn from you. You're not with us. We can't receive from you because you're not giving to us. Inevitably, the the teaching has to be passed on to someone else. And um, anyways. Yeah, with, with five minutes to go, I'll, I'll jump in one more time. Working with Mitchell, prepping this message, it's kind of like I want to do my own version of the message, but I thought, I thought Mitchell did well this morning. But the, the other tip I'll give you, if you're finding it hard to, and sometimes I've talked to people who've tried to find, sort of spend time with more mature people, and this will shock you too. Some mature Christians have full, busy schedules. <laughs> My advice would be if you humble yourself, if you say to someone, hey, can we make, could you make some time? When, we, when Serena and I approached the couple who mentored us in, in California, I, I approached Charlie Mudd and said, hey, um, Serena and I would love to spend some time with you guys be mentored. And I think his response was wise. He said, okay, what, what area of my life do you see? What, what area do you... Is narrowing it down because there may be, he may recognize there are certain spheres, topics he'd be less competent in. And so what Serena and I were so impressed with, I don't believe I'd ever seen Charlie and Cindy disagree in public. Never. I mean, I've never seen a more um, help-meeted together in concert couple publicly. Not that there, I'm sure there weren't discussions and even disagreements in private, but man, they, they really publicly compliment each other and there's never any strife or con- contradiction. Well, it turned out that actually was the result of a lot of work effort and practice. It wasn't just something they eased into. And, and so as we spent time and then learned how they worked through that, it was really helpful for us. But if you humble yourself and say, hey, I'd like to spend some time with you. I'd like to, can I, I'd love to get in your home. I'd love to see or get, pick your brain. A, you're not going to, whatever happens, no one's going to be offended because you've just flattered someone. You've just indicated there's some area of maturity you see in them. And that, I think, um, 
if, if, if someone knows you're actually asking for a spiritual reason, not just to hang out, you're, they're more likely to see the, the priority of making time for you that they may not make if what they thought you were saying is you want to hang out and chat sports. Um, so making it clear, and all you have to do is humble yourself. Hey, man, I'd love to get, I know you're busy, but if, I'd love to get some time, some of your time, um, because I'd love to, to pick your brain, and I'm, I'm impressed with how you deal with your kids, or I'm impressed with how you serve your employer faithfully without grumbling. And, man, I find that really hard, and I'd love any tips or help you can give me. I, I think you'll find people pretty ready and open to do that. When I, when I press people who say, I tried spending some time, they didn't speak that clearly, and so I think the other person may have just heard, hey, do you want to hang out? Well, actually, I'm really pretty busy, you know. Um, so humble yourself and just, just make it clear wh- where you want help and growth. And I think you'll be surprised at how open people can be to that. That's, that's my mini sermon. Mitchell, final words to time. God be with you. <laughs>